uh, we do turn this evening to Isaiah chapter 49. If you have a Bible, we're going to be turning to uh, verses 5 and 6. Though I'd like to read this the beginning of the good news in this chapter from, the, from verse 1. But we'll be considering really mostly verse, verses 5 and 6 today. And once again, not, not just in context, but what does this have to teach us about the expectation and the hope of all the world as given us to us in the prophets, and where do we find ourselves in all that? Well, Isaiah chapter 49, starting in verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he's made mention of my name. And he's made mention, excuse me, and he's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I am glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the sight of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this servant of the Lord and for the salvation that has come to these ends of the earth. We pray that it would continue its career of conquest and that you would bless its ministers, those who herald the king and the kingdom. We pray that you would even now inspire us and encourage us in uh, your work in the world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, you know that many find prophecy and interesting and often challenging, perhaps controversial subject, but why is it important for Christian living? How does it affect our daily choices, our attitudes, our hopes, and our fears? Can it inspire us to live more faithfully or fruitfully or joyfully or obediently in the present? Well, yes, indeed, and that's why there's so much of it in the Bible. First prophecy reminds us that God is sovereign over history. He has a plan and a purpose for his creation and for you, and it all works together. He will bring to pass in his own time, in his own way, all that he has set before us. Not a word shall fall. He is not surprised or frustrated by all the events that happen in the world, nor is he distant from them. He is actively involved in working out his will so that what men mean for evil, he might mean for good. And he invites us even to join him in his happy mission. This prophecy that we read uh, throughout the Bible gives us confidence that God is surely in control and that nothing can thwart his ultimate victory. Also, prophecy motivates us to live in light of eternity. We know that this world is not our home, that we are pilgrims and strangers here. And as we've seen time and time again, prophecy is uh, given to us uh, the whole future in one glimpse. And so, in, even in so many of these early prophecies, we can see that 
that we have a future and a hope and that we will surely give an account of our lives before the judgment seat of Christ and re receive rewards all out of proportion for what we have done. He will say to the one who had five minas, take charge of five cities, for such is the great glory of that kingdom to come. Uh, this, these prophecies challenge us to live with a heavenly-minded perspective, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that the present age is not going to last forever. Third, prophecy encourages us to hope in God's promises. We know that God has prepared a glorious future for those who love him that includes a new heaven and a new earth, no more sin, sorrow, pain, or death, no more crying or tears. We know that God will wipe every tear from our eye and that we will see him face to face and enjoy his presence in glory. And so prophecy fills us with anticipation, with a reason to live and go on, with a longing for the day when we will enter into the fullness of our inheritance and be conformed to the image of Jesus. So... For these and many reasons, prophecy just fills the pages of the Bible. It's not a speculative or an irrelevant subject. It's a vital one, a practical one. It shapes our worldview, our values, our priorities, our actions. It helps us to live in the present, discouraging as it is, with faith, hope, and love. And it helps us to face the future with courage, peace, and joy. It's not a distraction from Christian living. It's an essential part. So the Lord gives it to us. Now, much of the prophecy of the future, as we've said, concerns the coming, the appearing, the career of one individual. The future that is often seen as a whole again, though with steps and stages unfolding in God's purpose. Uh, we, we, we've seen right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 or uh, later, at the, later in Genesis when Jacob blesses his son Judah uh, when we find this explicit promise um, that, uh, that a great king would come to bless the world and with him an unparalleled prosperity and so forth, well, we had no idea how that was going to work out if you just read that, that there would be two comings separated by, well, thousands of years now and, and, all, the, and all the ways in which this has come to pass. Uh, the Lord has, has saved uh, a great deal of, of wonder in this fulfillment. Well... Uh, this, uh, uh, so it is in the passage before us this evening. We have before us the second of four great poems or songs, sometimes called, about the servant of the Lord, the servant, who, as you'll know, is everywhere identified with Jesus in the New Testament. And uh, by the way, many people have noted how well each of these four servant songs in Isaiah, summarizes beautifully the life of Jesus. I mentioned this before, but just a quick reminder. At the beginning, Jesus was ministering to the needs of the hurting and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, which is what we read in chapter 42. He turned the tribes of Jacob to the Lord and became a light to the nations. Passage before us in 49. He shamefully and spitefully was treated, but did not turn back. He gave his face to shame and spitting chapter 50. And finally, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. But that was not his end, chapter 53. And so it, it does make a, a very wonderful, beautiful summary 
of the ministry of Jesus. Here today, in this second song, in chapter 49, we are introduced to the servant who comes to raise up the wayward tribes of Jacob and also bring God's salvation to the Gentile nations of the earth. In these verses, we hear the voice of Messiah himself describing his call, his work, and his glory. But there's a difficulty right off that you probably noticed when I read. Just who is this servant? Well, you note that there is a, a, a difficulty between verses 3 and 5. In verse 3, we read, The Lord said to me, You're my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, clearly the servant is Israel. I remember having a Jewish Bible study with... Uh, uh, people that uh, certainly didn't believe this was speaking about the Messiah, and they're like, see, see, see. Oh, well, there we go. I serve unto Israel. But then in verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. And again, verse 6, it's too small a thing to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Well, okay, this is strange. How can Israel raise up Israel? Is it a remnant? And if so, how can a remnant even restore the remnant, as is mentioned here? Well, uh, I could go on, but I'm just going to give you the answer. In, in so often in prophetic prophecies, uh, we find things that are perfectly clear, and then some things that seem profoundly difficult. But the, the answer here, to cut to the chase, is that uh, there seems to be, throughout these songs, both a messianic servant who leads God's remnant to renewal and so that the people are joined to him and brings salvation to the nations, uh, and, uh, and that people that follow him in that. Let, let me prove it to you before I go any further, because this prophecy is quoted in the New Testament, not, as you might expect, concerning Jesus. Paul quotes this passage. He quotes it against the Jews who were opposing him at the synagogue in Antioch. The Pisidian Antioch is a passage that he says is fulfilled in him, Paul, and his companions. Paul says to these Jews who are abusing him and gainsaying, he says, look, it was necessary that we speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, us, saying, quote, I have set you as a light to the nations, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, so is there a prophecy about Paul and Timothy and... Okay, no, the point is, uh, ultimately, this is about Christ and his salvation, that he, as you know from many other passages, is the hope of the world, the light of the world, the one who's going to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It is ultimately in him, but in him, joined to him, is the body of that same Messiah, that same faithful remnant who is appointed with and in him to bring salvation to the world, who are addressed in various places as Israel in prophecy. So, in other words, uh, what is in mind here, to be, to be very clear, um, is not just Jesus the Messiah 
or his faithful people in him, the true remnant. Uh, but both together, uh, he, the true Israel of God, in, in its king and its people, uh, are the uh, one whom the Lord has commanded. So ultimately, yes, Jesus, but we in him. So we find in this prophecy in Isaiah 49, not only the call, but also the work of the Messiah uh, to, uh, and his people. He's called to restore Israel, to bring salvation to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, to reveal grace and truth to those in darkness. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Well, uh, this is the servant who is going to be glorified, yet I will be glorious in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the nations, he will not labor in vain. He will not spend his strength for nothing, but he will accomplish God's purpose and receive his reward. And that is all, again, fulfilled in Jesus and his people. So it goes on, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their, ho their, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, the Messiah, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the, of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, at an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. I'll preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth. And so it is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the risen and ascended Lord who has now been given all authority in heaven and earth, commanding his body, his people, to go and make disciples of all the nations in his name from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and the ends of the earth, that not only should the tribes of Jacob be raised up, but the light of the nations shining forth in a mission that will not be in vain. Kings shall see and princes shall arise. So far, I think that uh, everybody from about every school would agree the, some difficulties about uh, when and how, perhaps. But uh, this is, I, I think, uh, uh, one of the glorious things that we, we read sometimes, uh, you know, talking about the coming of the king. And so it's a very good uh, study for us as we try to answer some now some difficult questions about how this passage and many, many like it um, are fulfilled and how we read them now as Gentiles in the 21st century. Uh, in particular, I'd like to put it to you in three questions now. Who is Israel now? Second, is there a hope of salvation for the Jews? And third, why does this matter for us? Why does it matter? All right. The first question is, who is Israel now? You'll know that one of the most difficult questions or dividing questions, if you like, historically and certainly today in prophetic interpretation is, what is the relationship between Israel and the church of Jesus Christ? There are so many prophecies about the future of Israel. Um, and, and, and all would agree that many of those things are very explicitly applied to us now, living at this time, that we partake of these fulfillments somehow. But does that mean that uh, Israel is now, if you like, replaced in the church? 
Uh, or is, do, do all of these prophecies have then their major fulfillment in the days of the kingdom to come? Or is there something in between? Who is Israel? When we read about uh, the Israel this and Zion that, we do this in the Psalms all the times. We, we sing and we read about these things and we know uh, that we are included in all of those things somehow. But does that mean that we are the Israel of God? Well, we are in one sense. Does that mean that um, there, there is no uh, Israel anymore in prophecy to look forward to? Well, here we find a division. Last time I explained three basic, basic uh, views of this and many similar prophecies. Um, there is a future-looking view that, that, that says all these things are, in their major fulfillment at least, to be fulfilled in the future. In a, a kingdom that comes when Jesus returns and reigns on the earth a thousand or so years, uh, sometimes therefore called pre-millennialism, as we're living before the millennium, and uh, a, pop a very popular view, well, at least a, a popular view, let's put it that way, for the first three centuries, which all but disappeared until it made a great resurgence in the, sixth, in the 19th century to this day. And so, well, whatever might be going on now, uh, they might say, yes, salvation is going to the ends of the earth, it's true, and, and, and the remnant of Israel is, is saved uh, but we shouldn't expect very much, perhaps, to happen in, in this age, or at least, at least not until the very end, perhaps. So, depending on your view, in the future, uh, Israel will turn to the Lord in mass, and so he will raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore that remnant, and it will be the great salvation of the nations in that day, a future-looking uh, fulfillment of a view called premillennialism, um, with a great with a great number of nuances and people disagree with each other. But nevertheless, a future-looking view. Uh, the second is called a millennialism, a millennialism, emphasizing that these prophecies that we read uh, are, are now being fulfilled in the church, and uh, they they will be perfectly fulfilled in, in heaven. Um, when you know princes shall worship and kings shall arise and all, and all the glories of these uh, of these things shall happen, um, but uh, but but basically what we what we find throughout the history of the church is the salvation going to the remnant of Israel, the uh, the, the conversion of of nations. It's it's happening now. It's a realized eschatology. And last time I said, okay, so so basically this means. This means that if you're a millennial, you're expecting, therefore, that everything has been fulfilled, or at least almost fulfilled. I mean, here we are, but uh, that Jesus could come back any time. Uh, a doctrine called the imminent return, which both premillennialism and amillennialism share, emphasizing the prophecies are essentially fulfilled. And uh, I, I had some questions on that, so let me explain. Back after Nicaea, uh, especially after... Uh, Augustine. Um, basically, the, the, the whole church unified on one view of Israel, that it was fulfilled in the church. I'll explain more in a moment. And therefore, uh, East and West, uh, 
people did not look for a future fulfillment. Uh, they expected the Lord to come back at any time. Roman Catholicism, for example, is confessionally committed to this view, uh, which was in the 20th century called amillennialism, didn't have a view earlier, but nevertheless, uh, Roman Catechism, CCC 673. Since the ascension, Christ's coming in glory has been imminent. This eschatological coming could be accomplished at any moment, even if both it and the final trial that preceded are delayed. This is the view that uh, I understand, at least from online sources. I was not able to find any confessional statement, but this is, I understand from online sources, the universal view of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, except for a very rare bird, this, is a, this was adopted by, has been adopted by Lutherans uh, today. This, this is the view. Uh, Calvin uh, writes, uh, today we must be alert to grasp the imminent return of Christ. Commenting on Matthew 24, be prepared to expect him every day, or rather every moment, commenting on Luke 12, as he has promised that he will return to us, we ought to hold ourselves prepared at every moment to receive him. 1 John 2, today we must be alert to grasp the imminent return of Christ. Nothing remains, he says, but the final revelation of the Christ. Uh, Melanchthon, the day of judgment is already upon us, and it is at the doors. So, uh, so you see, uh, I, could, I could quote others, but basically you might want to say classical amillennialism, the view of the whole church for most of its history, uh, East and West, and uh, certainly Luther, Calvin, other reformers, although Calvin a bit inconsistent. You look at some passages and he's expecting some, some future blessings to the world. Uh, look at other passages, imminent return. He, he didn't work things out as well. Uh, so uh, Calvin's a bit of a tweener sometimes. Nevertheless, uh, this, this was the view. When we read this passage, we say, fulfilled. It's happened in the history of the world. And, and, and the, the nations, uh, certainly after Pentecost, have uh, received the gospel. I mean, it is going forth more and more, yes, and the Lord's delay means salvation. But there's nothing that we're waiting for. Jesus can come back any day. Classical amillennialism. Um, and, uh, and, and Melanchthon, like Luther, uh, was not only thinking that you know, everything's fulfilled, they were thinking, look, the judge is at the door, right? Because what's supposed to happen before that great day of judgment? Well, we read it last time, there's going to be a great apostasy, and then the revelation of the Antichrist. And what had just happened? To Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, who was the great Antichrist? Who was at last revealed? Anyone? The Pope of Rome. I mean, frankly, Anabaptists and Lutherans and, and uh, Anglicans, they couldn't, they couldn't agree on a whole lot of things, but this they all agreed on. The Antichrist had been unmasked and revealed, and therefore, it was the time of the end. Stu Latimer, not Stu Latimer, sorry, that's guy in my denomination. Um, Stuart Latimer? Hugh, thank you. 
Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, lost it for a second. English reformer. St. Paul says, The Lord will not come till the swerving, that is the apostasy, from the faith has come. Which thing is already done and past? Antichrist is already known throughout the world. Therefore, the day is not far off. <coughs> All right. Well, that, that, was, that was the way. Uh, early reformers, everything... But then, time went on. Generations came, generations went. Uh, I thought we had the Antichrist revealed and the end was at hand. Hmm. All right, so the next generation of English Puritans, um, uh, Dutchmen, <coughs> others, especially in the uh, Scottish churches and uh, other parts of the uh, English-speaking world, Congregationalists soon, they had to go back to the drawing board. They said, all right, we, we, we still think this is the Antichrist and he's been revealed. Um, but we, we haven't seen other things take place that we were expecting to, to see, and certainly the end is not here. So a, a new theology arose, uh, which um, frankly had uh, very little uh, in the way of uh, support or adherence previously. It's called post-millennialism, one that I happen to hold. It, it teaches, well, Maybe there is more that must take place, therefore. Um, for example, as I mentioned, since Christ has redeemed men to God by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and God's salvation must come to, therefore, the ends of the earth, that all the families in the earth may be blessed in the seed of Abraham, that uh, there are things that have to be fulfilled. And, um, yeah, when the uh, Puritans, and especially their children, woke up to this, they said, oh, well, I guess if, if there's more left to do, we better get doing it, right? And so uh, Carey and uh, others, just about any pioneer missionary you could name, uh, uh, took the writings of the Puritans, and especially Jonathan Edwards, who had a massive effect on the Puritan societies and the English uh, missionary societies, and they said, we, we better get to work, because if every tribe, tongue, people in the nation need to hear this, and God's going to have a a harvest from this, that Christ has died and purchased men with his blood from all these places, we better get going. So uh, post-millennialism developed at <coughs> and, uh, his, and, and prophecy was reevaluated. So when we read a passage like this about uh, the salvation of the nations, and the uh, res restoration of Israel, we say, well, salvation of the nations, only done in part, but must be completed, and the raising up of the tribes of Israel, well, so far only a remnant, uh, I'll show you from later, we, uh, we still hold, there must be more. So, this is the third option, if you like. Uh, it's not all future, it's not all fulfilled, some of it's been fulfilled, some of it's in the future in this age. And so uh, a hope for the nations, a hope for Israel that yet must be fulfilled. Clear as mud? Okay. I, I tried to introduce this last time, and uh, I'm sure I bored you to death. So anyway, please forgive me. Um, now, uh, now there... Now there comes in the 20th century. I, I was, I was going to get into, I, I was going to go into some of the nuances of these views, uh, and I just skipped that whole section last time, and then um, people said, well, okay, so uh, some amillennialists uh, believe virtually 
everything the post-millennialists believe, except for maybe this part about Israel. In fact, some post-millennialists believe just about everything that at least optimistic amillennials believe, except for the conversion of Israel. Okay, say, so, uh, yeah, it's complicated, right? In the 20th century, a new word was developed, amillennialism. A lot of people wrote from very different perspectives, and uh, some were dissatisfied with classical Augustinian amillennialism, and they got something that was virtually the same as what the Puritans said, though, yeah, perhaps not this or that. Um, some post-millennialists uh, following Edwards uh, saw the great, great glory in the future. All the nations at once converted. Uh, John Bunyan's wonderful future of uh, future prophecy of, of Jerusalem and so forth. Uh, other post-millennialists said, yeah, I'm not so sure. Probably more like the book of Acts, right? That's kind of where I'm at here, where uh, it's going to the nations. It's going to have a great harvest among the nations, but we're, we're not looking for a thousand years of peace or anything uh, like that. So anyway, uh, there's lots of nuances in this. Um, uh, Louis Burkhoff, great uh, reformed writer and a, a very optimistic amillennial, Cornelius Venema, just came out with a, a book, uh, a book that R.C. Sproul reviewed and said, look, if this is modern amillennial optimistic amillennialism. If this is what they believe, it's everything I believe, with the exception that Venema was uh, hesitant to have any definite future for Israel, and Sproul was very confident there was a, some future for Israel uh, for their salvation. Um, and, and, and so I think there's a convergence going on um, with more of the optimistic guys uh, getting a lot more hearing, a lot of the post-millennial guys calming down a little bit and uh, meeting somewhere in the middle. So, had to explain from last time. If that's over your head, if you weren't here, I'm sorry. Back to, the, back to the passage, okay. Concerning this question now, when we read about a future for Israel, all, all that to say, who is Israel? I, is it fulfilled in the church? Is it fulfilled in the people of Jewish descent today? Is it uh, talking about some generation yet to come in a, in a future kingdom? Who is Israel. Who, who does this refer to? Many evangelicals hold to one of two common positions on this, which are, I don't think nicely called, but I'm going to give you the words, separation theology or replacement theology. Separation theology or replacement theology. I apologize. I think both of them are pejorative, but I can't find any other words. Uh, there is a third position, which I hold and other, others do, but let me explain. The first, separation theology views this prophecy and the role of Israel as very literal and to be fulfilled in the future. As we've said, the New Testament church, especially as represented in the Schofield Bible, is not even, is not even in Isaiah's prophecy at all. There is a total lack of reference in Isaiah 49 to the Gentile church. And Paul, maybe fetching this prophecy out, using it for his own purposes, should not be read, according to this view, uh, as, as representative that this is talking about now. This is talking about a future kingdom. Separation theology radically distinguishes God's promises and programs for ethnic Israel, his earthly people, which will be fulfilled in the future, 
and that of the New Testament church, which is in the present. I, I realize dispensationalism is also lots of nuances, especially the new guys. They're much closer to us. But anyway, historically speaking, ethnic Israel receives the designation of the earthly people of God because they are thought to be destined to receive the land of Canaan and to experience an earthly salvation in the millennium and beyond. The Gentiles of the New Testament church are frequently described as the spiritual people of God because they are destined to receive the inheritance of a heavenly existence. These Old Testament and New Testament promises continue alongside each other as largely independent programs. Lots of nuances I'm not going to get into. The other view, uh, main view, replacement theology, holds that ethnic Israel has now ceased to have any special future or role in the eyes of God. The outlook, again, that dominated in the church east and west from the fourth century uh, up through the Reformation. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know of exceptions. I'm sure there were exceptions somewhere, but I don't know of exceptions. In this view, God has uh, abrogated his special covenant status with Israel, ethnic Israel, and replaced it now with the new people of God, the Christian church. At times, this replacement theology is at least thought to be so categorical, there is no role for the Jews in the plan of God since the time Jesus says, the kingdom is taken from you and given to a nation that'll bear its fruits. Now, um, I don't know anybody that thinks that God has completely cast off Israel, even among the most devoted amillennialists, nevertheless, uh, th these are two rather extreme views. I'm, I'm uh, not nuancing, just putting them out there. Uh, certainly, if you look at the Middle Ages, this, this, this was the prevailing view. Now, uh, one more view here. Post-millennialists view the people of God as what might be called in unity theology. Unity theology, okay, that, that uh, there's this continuity, at least, Maybe continuity theology is better. I'm trying to look for a word. There's no word. Um, so, so I have to explain from Romans chapter 11. And if you'd like to turn there, I'll come to the second question and answer this together. Is there a hope for the salvation of the Jews? Is there a hope for the salvation of the Jews? In Romans 11, uh, Paul begins by asking, did God reject his people? Um, in context here, uh, quoting Isaiah, fulfilled, all day long I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people, right? Um, has God cast him away? Uh, certainly not. I'm an Israelite, he answers. The proof comes in two parts. First he says, look, there's a remnant among the Jews, and I'm one. Everyone agrees. Second proof, which is explained uh, for the of chapter 11, the second part, is that not only does God have a remnant at the present, but he has a plan for later. Hardness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, you say, does that mean there's going to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem according to this view? No, nothing about that. Um, but is there a hope for the salvation of the Jews? Uh, Calvin, representing, you know, again, all, all theology basically from Augustine onward, says all Israel 
refers neither just to believing Jews alone nor to believers within the New Testament church alone, but all Israel denotes the combined number of believing Jews and Gentiles from both Old and New Testament periods, the, the Israel of God, the elect of God. Well, uh, sorry, I, I meant to say that later. Let's, let's look at the chapter. This chapter contrasts what now is characterizing Israel with what will be in the future. You can imagine two columns now, one with the current situation, just a remnant, and the other with what's going to happen. So let's pick up in verse 12. Um, <clears throat> verse 11. I say now, have they, Israel, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? How much more will their fullness be? Again, their rejection, um, verse 15, their being cast away is the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If, verse 22, they were broken off because of their unbelief, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own th tree? Verse 25, now a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, the Jews have, in the main, not believed in their Messiah, and that situation continues to this day. But this passage uh, envisions a change from that situation. The present state of Israel is the same today as it was then, verse 5, at the present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 7, Israel at this point has not obtained what it seeks, that the elect have obtained it, the rest were blinded. Verse 11, they stumbled. That's their situation right up to now. A remnant, yes, but not much to say otherwise. But what will Paul say happens in the future? Verse 11 here. Though their fall into unbelief, uh, sorry, through their fall into unbelief, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so if their fall is riches for the world, their failure riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness? Now, fall, failure, then fullness. If, verse 15, their casting away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be? Blindness in part has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles. Can you see the contrast over and over again? I don't mean to go over it too many times here, but contrasting the present remnant status of general national blindness with the hope of a change in the future. His second reason why Israel has not uh, been um, cast away fully. The editors of the New King James, if you have that uh, Thomas Nelson, break the chapter into two sections. Israel's rejection not total, there's a remnant now, and Israel's rejection not final, he's got a plan. God has not rejected his people of old because there's a remnant by grace, as there's always been, and there's a great until in this passage at which time blessings for the world uh, 
Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come out of Zion, as it's written. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant. Okay, so in God's plan of history, through the Jews' disobedience, Gentiles have come to experience mercy. And yet, through that mercy, the Jews will, being provoked to jealousy, at last come to know the mercy when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. While the Jews as a people are currently, he says, verse 28, enemies because of the gospel, is it 28 here? Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You Gentiles were once disobedient to God, and yet now have become obedient so that through the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they may also obtain mercy. God has commanded all men to disobedience, that he might have mercy on them all, Jew and Gentile. So here is the general outline uh, that post-millennial people like myself as well as others see. And uh, I... Uh, I'll have some, I have a, I have a number, of, uh, number of quotes I'll, I'll give to you, but uh, just a couple things here. Jonathan Edwards, nothing is more certainly foretold than the national conversion of Jews in Romans 11. Charles Spurgeon, I don't think we attach enough uh, importance to the restoration of the Jews. We don't think enough of it, but certainly, if there's anything promised in the Bible, it is this. John Murray, my favorite theologian of the 20th, 20th century, uh, he, he wrote on amillennialism, and he wrote a, a, a commentary on Romans. And he took it all back, and uh, he said, look, I have to reckon with this. There's a future for Israel. And so uh, this, this actually has probably made more people post-millennial than any other passage. But I wanted to go with it so, so that you might see there are various views. Some people think basically it's being fulfilled in the church, in the elect, Calvin and others before him. Uh, some people think... This is all coming in a future age or right at the end of this age. And uh, others uh, think, well, the fullness of the Gentiles and the conversion of the Jews is the program for the world's salvation today. What does that matter for us? My last question here. Um, in context, he says, don't be proud or boast against the branches. The tendency is for us Gentiles not to regard unbelieving Israel at all. We've been made partakers of the promises, and Paul says, don't you boast against those branches. And if you boast, remember that you Gentiles don't support the root, the Jews. They support you. And just as you were grafted in, you better fear, you could be cut out. And the whole history of the church has, has fleshed this out. North Africa, Egypt, Palestine, Asia Minor. It's hard to find any churches there today. That used to be the heartland. Gentiles, don't boast in anything special has come to you because uh, if you are disobedient, you too will be cut out, he says. Second, he says, you shouldn't be ignorant of this mystery. The mystery, he says, I, I myself magnify my ministry to provoke my own countrymen to jealousy. I understand God's program and I'm working with it. Back in chapter 10, he said, my own heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And even the work I do among the Gentiles, I'm doing in part longing for my own countrymen to see it and be provoked. So 
Is it your heart's desire and prayer for Israel to be saved? Um, because, you know, we have, that, uh, we have that prayer, thy kingdom come. And what are we praying for? Westminster Larger Catechism. What do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, etc. So this, this should be part of our program and, and prayer. It was Paul's. And he does not want the Gentiles in particular here to be ignorant of the mystery that you Gentiles are the means God has appointed to make these Jewish people jealous, and at last he will bring them to repentance through you. So desire it, pray for it, work for it. Third, he says, you should know how to believe, how, how to view unbelieving Jews. They are now enemies of the gospel. They're enemies. Though God's promises, covenant, and gifts, and calling are irrevocable. God is not going to forget them. He swore that the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So they are enemies, yes, but there's this nuanced understanding that they are still remembered by God because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore we are uh, to uh, not despise those who, as a nation, we have received spiritual blessings from. He gets into that later. Uh, yeah, you, you Gentiles, you need to realize that just as, they've, as you've shared in their spiritual blessings, so now it'd be nice if, they, if, the, if the believing Jews in Jerusalem shared in your physical blessings. Well, okay. So you should stand in awe of God's wisdom, he says at the end. God has committed all men to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We should stand in awe. And practically speaking, I think today we have a lot of questions. Uh, God is mightily at work in this country among the Jews. I don't know if we've ever seen this in the history of the world. One third of the religious Jews in our country are now Christian. 1.7 million as of 10 years ago. And what God is doing here in this country, he seems to be also doing elsewhere in the world. I don't think this has happened since the days of the apostles. And if uh, things are happening, uh, we ought to at least have our eyes open. It was concern for the salvation of the Jews and expectation of one day their eventual turning to the Lord Jesus that animated the interest of Jewish evangelism in 19th century Scotland. As John Duncan, famous Rabbi Duncan from the Scottish Free Church, went to Hungary and converted Edersheim and others. Uh, Robert Murray McShane and Andrew Bonner took a trip to Israel, that mission of discovery. Scottish Presbyterians historically have been deeply interested in the conversion of the Jews and look to evangelize them uh, with the hope of their eventual success from this passage. Also, we have this situation in international politics, right? Some pastors have advocated a kind of Christian Zionism, which has more to do with the view of prophecy than I think of international justice, frankly. If you, if you drive down the road on Pepper's Ferry over the river, you'll find uh, four churches on, that, uh, on Route 11 flying the State of Israel flag next to the Christian flag. Um, this uh, pr prophecy does dictate national policy these days from the formation of the nation to our support of Israel. But we need to have a more nuanced understanding because they are in disobedience and are, as far as the gospel is concerned, 
enemies. And yet there is a hope for the salvation of those individual people. And uh, so we shouldn't tend toward anti-Semitism. We shouldn't tend toward uh, Zionism as though uh, what's going on there now probably has uh, any relevance to this. But maybe, maybe God has a way to accomplish it all. Finally, it's important because of anti-Semitism today, you see it in the news, and in particular, um, Reformed Christians have historically been accused of it. Um, you, you might, however, read Ian Murray's book, The Puritan Hope, where he, I think, demonstrates conclusively the very reverse is the historic Puritan and uh, Scottish Presbyterian teaching, uh, English church teaching, the Anglican teaching, that we may not, on the one hand, expect the physical descendants of Aaron to be offering red heifers in a rebuilt temple. However, uh, we, we certainly do have a gospel future in mind for the Jews. Long for it, pray for it when we say thy kingdom come. And for this reason, Presbyterians in particular have done more than any others in establishing missions to the land of Israel, right? Christian Witness to Israel is the Free Churches uh, group. Uh, there's, a, there's a building our, our Jewish friends knew about uh, in Jerusalem, purchased by the Scottish Church as a mission center, uh, hoping that they might have the infrastructure one day, knowing it's going to come, uh, to, uh, to reach out to Jews. They're already at work praying that God might haste the day. So uh, what does all this have to do with national Israel? Um, R.C. Sproul says, actually, I think that these prophecies do have something about the to do with the return to the land. Lorraine Bettner, no way, he says. Uh, David Brown's classic work on the restoration of the Jews thought that a return to the promised land was in the cards, and so it, and so it was. Basically, there is no unified view among, among uh, post-millennialists. The premillennialists say virtually all yes. The amillennialists virtually all say no. Post-millennialists, um, I don't know. The, the salvation of the Jews, that I'm sure about. Other things, depends on who you read. In conclusion, a prophecy is always a call to get with God's program, to bring the gospel to all nations, including Israel, uh, and it's not a hopeless situation. God has appointed his servant to be his salvation to the ends of the earth and to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Zechariah 12, I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. O Israel, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Well, I did preach extra long and I thank you for bearing with me through that try to have a shorter sermon next week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this uh, hope that you have given to all nations and all peoples, uh, a God that holds all men over to disobedience in order that he might at last have mercy upon them all. And we do conclude with that uh, affirmation that uh, no one has known your mind, known, none has become your counselor, none has first given to you that you should repay him. For from you and through you and to you are all things. And may you have the glory in the nations of the earth, now and forever. Amen. Well, uh, let's conclude by singing uh, Psalm 62a in the blue book. 62a, my soul finds rest in God alone.
Stand as we sing. says there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand to reign over the Gentiles and him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.